Hello, friends and listeners. Below the line, at least today's episode, is brought to you by a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two-ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every morning and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking too much coffee day to day. And it is the single most important part of my morning ritual to do more and stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, stress management, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, etc. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter promo code BTL for below the line to get 15% off and try it for yourself. I also wanted to tell you about MetaLab. You probably didn't know it at the time, but MetaLab has been the secret sauce behind products used by billions of people around the world, with a B, billions. They've been creating apps and products for over a decade with startups like Slack and Coinbase, as well as industry leaders like Google and Uber, and I have been recommending them to friends and founders of companies for years, way before starting this podcast. From delightful design to world-class engineering and everything in between, MetaLab works with teams of all sizes to sweat the details and build products that your users will love. I am a massive, massive fan of MetaLab. They are one of the only agencies that I consistently recommend and have been since my friends at Coinbase used them maybe six years ago and loved working with them. There are a lot of agencies out there, but if you're like me and obsessed with pixel-perfect products that people love to use, you've got to talk to MetaLab. Check them out at metalab.co. That is M-E-T-A-L-A-B dot C-O, metalab.co. And when you get in touch, let them know that James sent you. And if you dig below the line, we'd love a review. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. And if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star ones we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. Only takes two to three seconds, and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Today's deep dive is with Brianne Kimmel. We're going to be discussing her path to angel investing and then ultimately starting a fund in the last year and a half. She's an early stage startup investor here in the Bay Area, and her fund is called Work Life with has a vision, a very interesting vision of investing in companies that make work more flexible, creative, human, and balanced. It's really, it's a great name for a fund, work life, especially with what employees, team members, and founders are starting to look for more and more. But we talk about her journey to becoming an investor, which covers her first investment, what she was doing before she became an investor, her designs and her career and the early mentors that decisions that she chose early on that helped set her up to become an investor and and so much more. We even cover what are the types of founders that will thrive in this new post-COVID world. It's a great conversation and I'm really excited for listeners to get a deep dive into what 
it's like to become an angel investor, especially with more and more interest around the globe for people that have been working in technology to start thinking about investing in the space that they work in. So without further ado, let's get into it with Brianne Kimmel. This is Below the Line. We are live with Brianne Kimmel. Hey, Brianne. Hi, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a, it's been a crazy few weeks, um, but I'm excited to catch up. And, you know, optimistically, it's been beautiful weather in San Francisco. So I'm starting to get back outside again. It, it has been. Yeah, my, I have this brilliant executive coach that told me a few weeks ago, he said, um, I was remarking on the same thing. I was like, it's so weird. It It is this surreal, fe- surreal feeling of so much chaos on one level. And then I look out the window and it's, and it's beautiful outside and seems serene and peaceful. And yeah, he said, uh, both can be true and you don't need to find the average of the two of them. I was like, whoa, okay. That's wise stuff. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's been, um, you know, assuming family, friends, coworkers are, are all safe and well. Um, you know, I've heard from people with a really optimistic perspective of what's going on right now. And they're building really interesting things on evenings and weekends, or they're discovering new hobbies, or they're enjoying the extra time at home. And so I think it's, um, it's a really interesting time. But I think there have been some pros um, that have really complemented, you know, some of the other, um, you know, less fortunate parts of what's going on as well. So I think I've heard, I've heard the best of both worlds, which is always good. All right. Well, and, and I want to touch on that with you. That's one of the things I'd love to cover with you is how you think this will change the, the landscape for entrepreneurs and, and creators out there. The, I do want to start off by saying, um, you know, every episode and listeners know that every episode has a weird, quirky drink. And right now we are sharing where I'm drinking house and which is a low alcohol wine or aperitif. What are you drinking? I am drinking house as well. I'm drinking the ginger one. Um, Which one are you drinking? I'm drinking the citrus one. Oh, cool. Great. It's it's really, really good. Um, It is one of the few alcoholic drinks that I will choose to drink based on taste, which says a lot about the product. But we are both, we're both investors in house. And uh, so that's part of the reason, but just as much of the reason as it, it does taste amazing. And, and they're uh, taking off as a company. But I want to first say cheers, virtual cheers to you. Virtual cheers. So, yeah, it's good to catch up. It is great to catch up. And, I, and then I want to ask, just right off the bat, how did you find House as, a, as, a, as an angel investor, as an investor? How did you come across them? And I mean, like, down to the absolute minute details of how you came across them and how you became an investor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... The thing that I love about Silicon Valley is I feel like there is this like magical intersection of personal and professional life. And so I had actually, um, I had cold emailed Helena. It would have been, I think about two years ago. Um, I had been following her on Twitter. She had been working on this amazing, um, female in tech photo project. 
And so I remember looking at, um, she did this, this beautiful called techies. Yeah. Techies. So I covered techies and, um, early in my career, I had actually, um, worked with Nikon. And so I did early influencer marketing campaigns with Nikon, love photography, love storytelling. I studied journalism, um, and kind of tacked on CS at the, at the end of college. And so I had cold emailed her and was just like, Hey, I love everything you're doing. I'm just going to start spamming you and sending you interesting people that I meet at meetups because um, I think I'd been in the Bay Area for a few years. I was going to a lot of women in tech meetups. I was doing some angel investing, but not to the extent that I did over the past like 12, 24 months. And so I just started her- sending her names of cool people that I met and interesting people who, who had a, a unique point of view on the ecosystem or they were building something cool and interesting. And so we actually became internet friends um, long before House. And so um, she had reached out to me. We both worked from the wing in San Francisco, Audrey Gelman's female-friendly co-working space. And so we caught up at the wing and um, she pitched me on house. And this was before the, the cool bottle and the brand and the story. And, she, and when, when was this? This would have been a little over maybe a year and a half ago. Okay, cool. And yeah. So, so was, way, way before the, the hype. Way before, I mean, there there was no pitch deck, there was no um, you know creative concept. Um, she had said to me, "We we probably share a similarity, and, and the same for you too, as James. Where like we we didn't grow up in the Bay Area, you know, we didn't grow up from in in a tech family or, or anything like that. And so, you know, we were we were talking about romantic life and family life and all of these things. And she said, you know, I married this winemaker. I'm a photographer. I married this winemaker." And we keep seeing all these like amazing direct consumer brands and ways of like ha- hacking the supply chain and like rethinking distribution. And so, um, you know, we we had this uh, working session where she was speaking to, you know, to what extent can you actually ship alcohol? Like, how do we get it just enough alcohol that you're still able to ship it? How do we de- disrupt something like Diageo? And and that really clicked with me because, um, you know, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. I started college when I was in high school. Like I couldn't get wait, couldn't wait to get out of the Midwest. And I and I ended up moving to Sydney, Australia, and started out in product at Expedia. And so I was like, oh, the the Diageo model is quite quite similar to something like Expedia, where it's like if you look at airlines, if you look at hotel chains, like a lot of these like antiquated sectors, there's just like a few key players. And I felt like there was just like such a strong synergy between that and the alcohol brands where you know, there, there aren't really a, really a lot of better options for consumers. And I think we, we've seen this historically, especially with something like airlines, like there's no, there's no options because they operate almost like cartels. And so we had mm-hmm. this very cartel-like conversation. And, you know, this is before the brand, this is before the social media. But I was like, this is a really interesting model where I believe that there should be healthier alternatives for people. I believe that, you know, there is a sort of a Warby Parker version of alcohol that should exist out there. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been fun being involved from the very beginning. And I think today it's increasingly aligned with the vision that I have for work life, especially with programs like the rent, the restaurant project. Do you mind telling listeners what, what happened with that? And, and then I also want to touch, I want to, well, not touch on, but I want to dive into work life, but before getting to the restaurant project, what, what was the, internal narrative arc in your head from meeting hearing the pitch to investing and 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 to actually deciding okay i'm going to write a check 
for this company, just for founders to get some insight into what that that real narrative arc is like going on inside of an investor's head? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, with a partnership like Helena and Woody, what's interesting is that there is both deep expertise. I mean, having a multi-generational family who have come from the wine industry, I think gives them such like depth and insight. And there's a competitive advantage to know exactly how to do something. I also find there's this really great creative tension that comes from someone who's outside the sector as well. And so mm-hmm. I think like whenever I look at co-founder relationships, it's nice to have a bit of both. And so I do find a lot of times, um, and we'll talk more about work life and investments to date and all that good stuff. But I typically look for someone who is, you know, has uh, built great consumer products, someone who you know, really understands like the end user and how they're actually going to, to build and distribute something new. But I also find the nice complimentary thing is like for every disruptor, it's also helpful to have someone who has the, you know, the repeat operating experience, they come with a very um, stable list or relevant network. And so the way that I usually see that is oftentimes, I'll invest in um, consumer founders or consumer operators who are building their first workplace application. And so oftentimes they'll come with big ideas, disruptive ideas, but it it typically has to be married with someone else who has just amazing execution and they've done that before. And so I thought it was interesting because I saw that in-house where you can have a creative visionary, someone who's incredibly disruptive, someone who hasn't grown up in the wine industry, but like understands how to build brands. But I think having that very strategic and focused and, 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 experienced counterpart is what creates a very winning combination in a lot of these scenarios. Mm. Was there, when you do remember the emotion or reception to the idea when you first heard it versus when you decided to you know, sign the dotted line and wire the money? Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I think that this is where, um, when we first started talking, I likely still had my angel hat on where I think for angels, oftentimes you know, you expect a very different outcome or you use angel investing to build a network. Or I I think there's a lot of times where people will say angel, angel investing in Silicon Valley is, you know, the modern social currency. I think if anything, um, when I heard the vision, it was something where it felt like uncapped potential. And so I felt like the downside risk is that you invest in Potentially what becomes a very known entity and a cool company in the Bay Area, which to me, to me is, is, is great from an angel point of view. I also felt like, you know, as I was transitioning and raising my fund and, and, and with my venture hat on, you know, if there's a version where you can have software like margins, if you can have repeatable revenue with a consumer uh, subscription model if you can have these use cases where, you know, in the early days of house, we spent a lot of time thinking about to what extent could we actually have repeatable large contracts with large tech companies. And so I think that's where, you know, I think given the the current uh, macro environment, there's less on-site events. And, 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 and if anything, the shift to remote work and the consumer subscription model is doing very well. But I also think that there is this long-term vision where, 
you know, because they have such strong distribution, they have consumer awareness and mindshare, I think that they will quickly be able to close some large contracts at Google, Apple, Facebook, any of these companies that want to have a happy hour, but want to have a low alcohol and, uh, you know, more family friendly and more health conscious, you know, friendly um, concept on site. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think so you you invested early on. And I think that required a little bit more of maybe an academic or internal uh, reflection and, and narrative. I, I invested, I invested late. So about maybe three months ago, so a year after you, a year plus after you, and I invested in, and I always hear uh, one of my friends Lenny in my head whenever interviewing folks that, that says, be, "Can you be as specific as possible?" So I'm trying to add some specificity from from how these decisions get made by asking you these questions, but also offering my my viewpoint. I, I ended up investing. I knew I was going to invest very likely before even chatting with with Helena because honestly it was a friend of mine Todd Goldberg that just kept saying you should meet these people you should meet these people and I had maybe it was a uh, kind of two paths crossing I I could look online how legitimate their their brand was and and could trust that the product was quite legitimate given Woody's background but also that the brand execution was going to be amazing through Helena's background so that was maybe about 11 month, eleven minutes of research. Todd saying, you got to chat with them and, and kind of outsourcing um, my a little bit of my thinking with with him. And, and I don't know, that was maybe two emails. So a total of five minutes. And then and then about six minutes into the conversation, I was like, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm going to invest. And I invested in Halo Top very similarly. So little, so little. It was just an investor saying, an investor friend saying, you really should take this seriously. And I and I didn't take it that seriously in the beginning, but I always think about that example where my idea of angel investing was that it's it's this scientific, maybe a little art, but mainly scientific endeavor of investing like you would choose a stock. And and man, it is totally uh, sometimes by the seat of my pants or or just on the recommendation of someone that I I trust. And there's some network thinking there. So I, did you have any of uh, any elements of that in the, did you have any network thinking or, uh, or was it just kind of, you grew really comfortable with, with that opportunity, their vision. And you said, okay, worst case, it'll be, you know, I'll lose one X my money and best case, it could be 20, 30, 50, hundred uncapped. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really interesting question, and I think there there was almost a a, a counter network decision in the oh, health investment because I had pitched LPs on a high margin software focused fund, no direct to consumer, light consumer investing, but not consumer social unless there's a developer ecosystem or people are actively building on top of the platform, and I had all of these promises that I'd made to my LPs. And so if anything, the investment in-house actually in the short term raised a lot of questions. So it's direct to consumer, it's alcohol, arguably it could be classified under more of like, a, you know, is there a syntax involved? Do I need to figure out like to what extent am I able to invest in alcohol or cannabis or all these other sectors that, you know, a lot of LPs kind of frown upon? 
And mm-hmm. so if anything, it forced me to really, um, really do a lot of research. And so to really think about fundamentally, why do I believe that a low alcohol brand, uh, a community, um, local winemakers in Northern California are going to build a venture scale business. And so I think it's, you know, it's still very early, uh, on the venture scale side of things, but I think there were, there were a couple insights. I think the first thing is that with a name like work life and to really reimagine both the workplace experience, what it means to be great at your job, what are, you know, new, um, you know, opportunities in the workplace. I really felt like, you know, I'd spent a lot of time looking at on-site benefits. I'd spent a lot of time really unpacking, like, how do individual people choose the company that they work for? And what are the uh, levers that employers can pull to keep them there longer? And it really mm. felt like it was something where like there are, of course, you have the the large tech companies that, you know, they can compete for top talent because they have on-site services, you know, they pay well, the equity or stock options are meaningful. But I think beyond that, like it, it becomes, it becomes a, a real challenge for the rest of the companies, you know, globally. Where it's like, if you want to hire top talent, if you want to compete on culture, if you want to build a great place to work, like what are the core mechanics to do that? And so I actually, you know, I looked at a number of different cultural playbooks. You know, I read Eric Schmidt's books. I spent time. I, I, I mean, I love the, the work that Ben Horowitz is doing. And, you know, he talks a lot about consumer culture meets the workplace meets, you know, technology. And so in thinking through like, where's the world heading? Um, you know, I had been very fortunate to work at Zendesk before I left to start my own VC fund. And I think Zendesk in, in a lot of ways is such a, an amazing example for awesome culture, employee retention, like through and through thoughtful, um, you know, from having, you know, women on the board very early on from having a very family friendly workplace, um, with really, um, quite, competitive and, uh, and, and aggressive parent leave. And so I think that there'd been a lot of things where I felt like a lot of our culture events and a lot of the things that we were building were truly different. And so when I, when I spoke to Helena about, you know, to what extent would this be offered at startups? To what extent is this part of almost like this modern, um, workplace culture stack? where it's like a lot of people are drinking less. Um, they still want the benefit of spending time with their coworkers. They still want to have, you know, the benefit of aligning with kind of not only cool companies, but I would say values aligned companies. And I would say that mm-hmm. Helena and Woody are very much, they're very much a clear, um, you know, sort of reflection on the types of founders that I would want to invest in from a value standpoint because they are very family friendly, because they they are building a community around them, because they do deeply care about, you know, the people in the community, and not just the tech people in the community, but, you know, launching something like their restaurant project, which partnered with um, restaurants that are, you know, closed for the foreseeable future. I felt like in a lot of ways, like across every spectrum that I could evaluate them from a from a vision, product, execution, you know, value standpoint, it, it just all added up. 
And so if anything, you know, it was kind of a fun one where when you have your own fund, you get to make your own decisions. And so (laughs) that um, note to LPs, like, I think it's, I, I hope that they build a billion dollar company because I kind of went on a limb and said, we're doing this direct to consumer alcohol company margins are strong, like not software, but trust me. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was early, but a lot of, you know, the stars were aligning. And I think to date, it's been great to have them in the work life portfolio. I can tell you that two nights per week during quarantine, I host something called a house party. And so I send house to portfolio companies and their customers. And we get together for a happy hour over like a very specific topic. And so we've done this for design tools and dev tools. And um, we're doing it this week for uh, people in culture. And so the idea is like, can you get early stage companies? Can you get later stage companies? Can you also get the people who are really building the playbooks inside of, you know, really important, cool, interesting, relevant companies to get together and compare notes. And so Mm -hmm. it's been awesome because, you know, we have this captive audience where everyone's working from home. And so something as low cost and and easy to ship as house has been a really nice way to continue to build the community remotely. There's so much there that, uh, that I think uh, listeners might, might miss that that I would easily miss if I what if I didn't know the company, but I think it's you know you the product is amazing and it just tastes great, but it is all, everything you're talking about has so much forethought into it that you haven't even had to mention. Well, the product tastes great and it's a great a replacement for you know, a high alcohol wine or a liquor or something. It's you're actually just talking about all of the vision beyond just the product that makes companies really, really special to, to, and founders really special to invest mine. It reminds me of a, a Charlie Munger quote of, if you want to uh, find a good spouse, deserve a good spouse. And I think it's very similar to finding investors. If you want to find investors, especially if you want to find great investors, deserve great investors, be thoughtful across all of the things from the product to the distribution, to where you see it going, to the insight that you have over over maybe others in the space, and it's it's just interesting that you you were taken by so much about the brand. And I, I suppose I was as well. So much about it beyond just the product, and that is table stakes. But wow, the founders think through so many other aspects, like the restaurant project for for listeners that, that was, they spun it up in almost you know days. They were trying to save uh, restaurants that that they knew of. Uh, by selling products that were, I don't know, it was probably nine or 10 brand new products they were introducing themed and, and flavored with each you know specific restaurant in mind. It's, it's crazy for a, for a CPG product just to spin up new, new products, but you're right when they're getting started, but to do it uh, kind of on the, you know, I felt like it was insanely fast for nine or 10 partner restaurants to help them. It was, it was incredible speed and execution, but even more than that, uh, the thoughtfulness behind it was was really um, it was really extraordinary. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting point. I think that um, you know one of the things that I, I think a lot about, especially for the work life portfolio, which does tend to skew more B two B. I mean, more 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 creator focus, developer focus, designer focus, like very much targeting individual users of new technology. 
But I will say they uh, House is definitely the outlier as as the sort of direct to consumer one in the portfolio. But I think it's great to see just how quickly they're able to iterate, ship, you know, with software like margins. And so, if anything, they look a lot more similar to a lot of the the you know software companies in the portfolio than a lot than a lot of people would anticipate. And so, I think like that's. That's where I see, you know, the future of work going. That's where I see a lot of my recent investments, you know, building the, the the building blocks and sort of the infrastructure for other individuals to become the Helena and Woodies of the world. Because I think that that's where, you know, you can build, uh, you can scale a family business using uh, by disrupting the supply chain, by having great software, by thinking like uh, a startup or a tech person and applying that to any sector. And so I think if anything, you know, I, I'm an investor in a company called Pietra, which is, you know, essentially Shopify for fine jewelry. And the whole vision there was similar to my investment in Webflow, where it's like, to what extent can we make it as turnkey as possible for anyone to start their own business? Whether you're starting your own, you know, front end web development firm, whether you are using Webflow to start your own startup or nonprofit with Pietra, it's one of these things where, you know, jewelry is is very similar to alcohol from the perspective that they almost operate like cartels. Like De Beers has mind share, market share. It's very hard to access, you know, certain parts of the jewelry supply chain. I think especially around like fine diamonds and even, you know, uh, the manufacturing of jewelry. And so mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, I, I do look for new platforms or new ways to hack supply chain to which any person can build a community. You know, maybe it's an influencer that already has their own distribution, but I also find in a, in a lot of ways, it's just, you know, really good people who like to build community and who are, you know, authentic and passionate and work really hard can actually start their own business using um, new platforms. What is, before we get into kind of where work life is today uh, and your firm, which is the name of your firm, the, how many investments have you made total? So I have made 20 investments out of the fund. But in total, going back to maybe your your first check. Yeah. First check in. So I have made uh, 25 investments. Okay, what was your first? What was your first one? Uh, first investment uh, was actually a video API company called Voxit, and so they were more of a, a single line of code, developer friendly solution for high quality video. And so, what what Voxit did that was it was primarily a, a, a tech innovation where they had been a team of audio engineers and they had built um, an API where essentially you could isolate, you could isolate the conversation and remove the noise around you. And so what's awesome about that is oftentimes, especially now that, that everyone's on zoom, you end up having a lot of background noise. You end up having this awkward like transition from person to person and so by actually like really getting really tight on the audio, you know, the audio capabilities, you could actually make it almost like a surround sound like experience. And what so what year was not acquired? Yeah, what year? Yeah, that would have been that? Uh, about two two and a half years ago. Okay, and what? How long had you been thinking to yourself? Would you walk walk me through your thought process before becoming before writing your first check? what you thought of as you're writing that check is, is it, 
with was it with a fund in mind? Was it just okay? Let me dip my toe. Um, walk me through the months before, maybe years before, if you knew this is where you wanted to go. But the before, during, and and then maybe after, what happened with your second, third, fourth investment? That sounds great. Um, well, I will actually let's go back to the beginning because I think it's helpful context. Please. So yeah, please. I uh, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. I grew up in a town called. I grew up right outside of Youngstown, Ohio, which. For those who haven't heard of it, it's uh, historically been the most rapidly declining city in America. And so it's very much steel mill town. I grew up um, Ukrainian descent, so very much working class, immigrant family. I could not wait to get out of Ohio, which my parents will will kill me when they listen to this. But I, I had always been kind of a kid of the internet. And so I had you know, initially started playing video games, started playing The Sims, got into architecture. I used to, um, you know, I did a lot of, um, spent a lot of time on like blogs and wikis and, 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 and spent a lot of time looking at almost like new types of software and how to build things online. And so I actually had started out very early. Um, I was very interested in architecture and sort of understanding how things are built and how things are made. And so, I initially um, started college when I was in high school. And so at that time, the question was, do I study architecture? I'd also been very interested in just online journalism and the internet and how things were evolving. And so... And, and real quick, when you said earlier, when you said you couldn't wait to, to get out of Ohio or to, to get to college, what, what age did you start at, uh, at college? I started college uh, my sophomore year of high school. Wow. So about 15, yeah. 16? Yeah, about, I would have been uh, about 16. Yeah, my birthday's in September. And what was 14 year old Brienne like? <laughs> Look, I think, um, I think I'm probably very similar to where I, where I am now. I think that, you know, I'm very, I'm very motivated by ideas. I like reading a lot of different things. Um, at the time when I was younger, you know, I had a lot of different friend groups. And so I, like many people, I think I ended up moving schools when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And so in doing that, um, you know, I think anytime that you move and you have to reestablish a whole new group of friends and sort of rediscover your identity, I find that a lot of these life events actually do have a real long-term impact. And so I think when at that point in time, you know, I'd moved to a new school I actually had a, a really close friend who is actually, uh, she, she lives in Southern California and we're still very close. And so I think that I've always been the person where I have a few very close friends and then I have a broader network of people that are pretty eclectic. And so I never quite fit into one particular lunch table, so to speak. And I think that's a really interesting thing because I think when you, I, I watch, I watch a lot of TV. I study a lot of film. I read a lot of comedy. And so I think if you, if you think about like the, the stereotypical American college, it's like everyone has their own clique. And I think that I probably have always identified of like kind of dipping your toe or at least being friendly and getting to know a lot of different cliques. And I think over mm -hmm. time, like that actually is, has been very, it's been super beneficial for investing, right? Because you look at all these different topics, you meet all different types of people, you have to be pretty interested in a lot of different areas to 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 have the the rigor and the stamina and the, the interest to, to stay an investor in the long term. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that I'm I'm very grateful for for both having grown up in Ohio, I think having grown up in 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 the Midwest particularly or I don't know. I guess like a lot of times people classify it as the East Coast. I feel a lot more East Coast than I do Midwest a lot of times, but well, I'll say I'll say you're and I mentioned this to you before, but uh your like baseline warmth um when we first met or just jumping on the call today, it's so, so much, it is very unique for the Bay area and, and coming from Texas. Uh, folks said that people say that about, about me as well. And, and I think it is a massive asset for if that's your default mode is just warmth. And, and I also, yeah, I think I identify with also building relationships with different clicks, never really hardcore belonging in one, but being able to build, you know, connections with many, and uh, and that combined with the baseline warmth of maybe the Midwest or, or Texas, I think it's a it's a huge it's a huge benefit when you need to potentially make a connection, a genuine connection, build one with I don't know eight minutes at uh, at some event or thirty minutes and a and a coffee with an entrepreneur. So I, I think it's a massive massive skill set for or asset for an investor. Absolutely. Well, and I think that. Um... One interesting thing that, especially folks from outside the Bay Area, I think it's very easy to kind of hate on VCs. Or I think right now we're in this like meme culture where it's very funny to like make fun of, like, make fun of ourselves. And like, I think it's great, and I think it's you know very much comic relief. I also find that um, for those who have not been an investor, for those who are outside the Bay Area, it's very hard to say no to teams or individuals or people that you think are great or people that you've known for five, six, seven years. And, you know, like, I I think that there's, there's so much empathy, empathy, and there's a lot of, you know, sympathy and just respect for everyone that's building in the, in Silicon Valley. Because I think if anything right now, and the one thing that I consistently encourage founders is I think that, um, I'd love to invest in every company. And I think as an angel investor, you can put 25, 50, 100K checks into a lot of stuff. I think where we're at now in, in the startup ecosystem is, you know, founders should really find founder partner fit because I think there's just different styles of relationships. There's different styles of company building. I think that oftentimes like I love that every VC fund puts all of their portfolio company logos on their homepage because I think it should be really easy to figure out like what have they backed, what have they built, you know, how can they help me almost immediately. And I think that's the part of investing where I think that I give, um, you know, I give career VCs, I give the large platforms so much credit because to pass on a company or to, you know, send the rejection emails on a weekly basis, it's really hard. And because mm-hmm. and it's not because you don't think that the founders are great, or you don't believe they're going to build a big company. It just, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. And there's a lot that happens from a portfolio construction standpoint, where I think, you know, I myself with my my first time fund, I'm, I'm learning a lot of this and, and sort of developing my own processes and best practices to make sure that I'm doing it in a way where, I feel like I'm I'm adding value even in the in the uh, you know in the past emails. I also feel like there's still an open door, and founders can call me when things are going wrong, or you know when they need an outside point of view from someone who's not on the cap table. Which I think some of my strongest relationships are founders where I either uh, was not investing uh, when they when they were out raising earlier rounds, or 
you know, for some reason it, it wasn't quite a good fit for me at the time, but now as a, as a, a helpful friend and not, uh, someone on the cap table, you can have some really honest discussions behind the scenes. Well, and it's, yeah, it, it, Sarah Tavel was on the podcast and talked about one of her favorite investments, hip camp. She said no to, and, and stayed in touch and, and genuinely was said, you know, please reach out if, if I can be helpful or anything. And the founder took her up on that and built a relationship and then she invested. And, and I think it's, it is when, you know, when founders get a no, it is so much of this. We have anyone that thinks they, that they know what's going to happen in the future is uh, delusional or, or bald faced lying. And, and so investors have, I will say no to things. I'm like, I have no freaking clue if this is the right call. I'll say yes to things. And I'll be like, I have no clue if this is the right call. And so it's, it doesn't come from a place of certainty. I used to think it, it came from, it was either validating or it was, I'm going to show those motherfuckers they were wrong. Kind of like it really, the investor could be sending that email knowing that, okay, I could really be, in fact, I know a lot of investors think that's part that's part of the the hard part of sending those is one, they're sending 20 more of those than they are saying yes. But also in the back of their mind, they know their careers can be just as much marked by the ones that they missed as the ones that they, uh, they were right about. So it, yeah, it's very, it's very tough, very uncertain. And obviously for, for the great investors that really love building relationships, they know it can be this massive blow to relationships to say no, especially how the frequency in which investors say no. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I love that you, you mentioned Alyssa, because going back to your question earlier of, you know, to what extent, when did I know I, I wanted to start angel investing? When did I know that I wanted to start a fund? There was a moment where I was still operating at Zendesk. I had, you know, been angel investing, doing the evening evenings and weekends hustle where I was hosting you know, early stage dinners. I was doing low code, no code dinners. I was doing, you know, and you were doing that before you invested. Yeah. Yeah. Before I ever wrote a check, I was hosting dinners. I was getting people together. I was hosting this go to market boot camp that I now call SAS school. I was essentially doing the job of a VC, but I didn't know that's what it was. I was just aiming to be helpful. And I actually felt like Zendesk was such a good training ground for me to have a lot of like quote unquote customer empathy because I think that Zendesk does an amazing job with events. And I and I applied a lot of the same logic where it was like we were hosting these customer events. We were hosting things like um Zendesk Relate, which is this awesome conference where they bring in Mindy Kaling to give a talk about comedy writing and all of these things where it's just like, can you bring like consumer culture to the workplace? And I wanted to actually package all of that up and give it to early stage companies because I thought it was important. And so one of the interesting things, and and this was a a personal exercise to figure out to what extent did I want to be a full-time investor, is I actually made a market map and thought about, um, you know, what are interesting companies in the housing space? Like having come from Expedia, you know, I had worked on the Homeway acquisition, having spent time at Zendesk, where Zendesk does really well with travel, e-commerce, a lot of these great and interesting and and high growth consumer um, companies. So I made a market map and in spending time and looking at all of the subscription housing models, the short-term, you know, sort of peer-to-peer marketplaces, I did a pretty extensive uh, deep dive on HipCamp. And so this would have been shortly after uh, Sarah Tavel had invested. Um, at the time, I didn't know Sarah because I was like not well-versed in venture. I did know of Peter Fenton because he was on the board of Zendesk. 
And so I did this extensive, this exercise where I'd met a number of founders that were that were building more capital intensive businesses. I talked to Sonder, I talked to Zeus, I talked to, you know, all of these new business models that were reimagining both corporate housing, short-term housing, um, and travel. And, and when you say talk to them, are you just cold emailing the founders and off uh, how do you how do you make that meeting happen? Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, like San Francisco is just so serendipitous, right? I think there had been a mix of people that I had met at um, you know different dinners or events or yeah, cold emailed them or, or DM them on Twitter or what have you. And so Alyssa, yeah, Al- Alyssa was an interesting one because there was both this like the core mechanics of the business where when looking at it, I'm like, I grew up going camping, you know, I grew up in Ohio. Uh, my grandparents love tent camping. They also had an RV. I'm like, there's just like such a real, there's a real cultish culture around people who love the outdoors and especially people who love camping. And so I was like, that's really cool. Like Airbnb isn't quite solving for those people. They're more or less solving for a single family. That's a, a couple, a single family and individual that's staying in one house. So I was like, that's really interesting on, on, on more of like the, the, is there consumer demand and are they tapping into an existing known like subculture? And I, and I thought it checked the box there. I also loved this vision of, um, you know, if you listen to any podcasts or if you interview or talk to Alyssa, like she will tell you that there is such a strong environmental angle. I believe there's actually such a strong mental health angle where oftentimes, you know, the solution for burnout and, and, and mental health and even, you know, relate personal relationship issues, I don't know if we necessarily need an, another app or another subscription or like another tech thing to actually solve it. I think oftentimes it's, it's removing technology, it's getting outside, it's like reconnecting with people on a very personal level. And so I really loved Alyssa's vision on getting people outside actually encourages them to make smarter, greener decisions when they go back home. I also love the vision where I think that there's something to be said for just going off the grid, connecting with people, having real conversations, like, you know, seeing the stars for a little bit, and that'll help reset a lot of priorities or potential distractions that people have in their day to day. I thought that that was really interesting because there was kind of this macro trend where it's like people are getting burnout. We're spending too much time in front of screens. Like if anything, like what are low cost ways to do that? And I think getting outdoors is one of those things. But there was this third piece and this kind of goes back to an early stage. Oftentimes you see teams and you see one page PDFs, but you don't quite see a product or you don't quite have a all the pieces of the puzzle yet because it's still very early. And the thing that I kept going back to is that Alyssa had taken a... She went to a coding boot camp to build V1 of HipCamp. And so for me, I like investing in teams where I feel like they don't need my help. If anything, I'm really pushing and trying to earn my place on the cap table. And so I thought that with HipCamp, it was so interesting because... Alyssa is the type of person where she has found her problem fit. Like she's going to build HipCamp with or without you. And so I think that her ability, you know, her desire to learn how to code, to build the V1, to recruit great people. um, I'm not surprised that Sarah invested because I think that there is just such, um, there's so much power in building something for yourself, for convincing others to join you on this crazy idea. 
and for just like moving forward consistently. And I think that in a lot of ways, I think especially right now in the new macro environment, I just encourage founders to keep going and like keep building. And even if you have to pick up like consulting projects or, you know, pick up other things or learn how to code or learn how to no code on something like Webflow. Like, I just think there there is um, so much to be said for having that vision and, and investors will come when they're ready. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting in that. And this episode is is really a deep dive for angel investing and people that are, to, take, to use your words, the social currency uh, within the tech sector, maybe thinking of putting their toe in the water for angel investing. But I think it's just as helpful for founders, for creators, that people that want to be a founder or creator one day to get into the mindset of an angel investor. Or you've, you've already made an a, a interesting distinction between an angel investing hat and uh, and a fund hat. But the I think the thing that that you said that is worth underscoring is the founder is going to build it with or without you, and, and the same way that you know a founder or that Charlie Munger quote of if you want a good spouse, deserve a good spouse. If you want a good investor, deserve a good investor. Same thing for if you want to find great companies to invest in, deserve to find great companies. And it's a lot of scouring, and it's I, I go back to this imagery I had in my head when I thought about investors that they're clinical, scientific behind the screen investing as if they're investing in stocks, looking at numbers, looking at all kinds of numbers that I just had no idea which numbers are the most important. And then in reality, in many ways, it is a feeling and it's, it certainly is maybe a trend line of, of traction that definitely helps, but it is this feeling of, all right, this train is leaving the station, whether I get on or not. And and the more that the founder creates that from the determination or persistence that they obviously they're showing of, well, shit, they're going to invest. They're going to create this, whether I invest or not, it's going to be a force, whether I invest or not. Uh, but also I think, you know, the other things like showing this commitment uh, that you deserve great investors, having great investors uh, around the table, you know, whether it's a, you could also show traction in your round, but you're creating this feeling of the trains leaving the station, whether you're on or not. And and many founders, I pro, I, I see probably 900, I aim to see a thousand deals a year and probably seen around 800 to a thousand. And so many are, the, and it's where I was 10 years ago, where it was, man, if I could just get one investor to believe then I'll go all in on this. And it's the exact opposite. It can seem like that's the de-risked way to approach creation, but it's, it's the exact, exact opposite. The investors are looking for de-risked creators, the ones where you just have this feeling of, okay, there is a force of nature here. They're going to create this, whether I jump in or not. And I better, I mean, no one wants to invest in Amazon on the public scale based on, okay, well, I think I can help Amazon. No, you invest in because it's like, uh, they probably don't need my help, but it's going to be a, you know, that thing is going to be a juggernaut, whether I jump in or not. So I better jump in quickly. And and I think it's the same when you're chatting with a founder for the first time and, uh, and, they, and they make that impression within 20, 30, 45 minutes. It, like, it sounds like Alyssa made with you. Yeah. Did you, did you invest in HipCamp? I have not invested in HipCamp. I uh, I looked at the last round. I am likely to invest, yeah, in, in the next round. 
quite candidly, um, I actually looked at joining hip camps. So Alyssa oh, wow. had hired um, a head of product who I had worked with for a number of years at Expedia. And uh, we've spent a great deal of time together. And I think going back to the the point earlier, I find some of my strongest relationships, not always, but sometimes are the the friends or individuals where I'm not on the cap table because you can have a really good, honest conversation. And that happens quite a lot. And so there are a number of companies in the Bay Area where it's like, either the last round was preempted or, you know, they're individuals where we just have such a good personal relationship where I, where I actually will say like, I'm fine foregoing, like being an investor and happy to continue being your friend. And like, I think if anything, it's nice to sometimes have an investor friend who's not on the cap table. And so I think that's where it's like, there's so many different circumstances and scenarios and relationships that evolve um, living in the Bay Area. And it's one of these things where going back to my point earlier, especially on the past emails or, or how you interact with people even after you don't invest, like that's also how your reputation is built. I also think that you know, if you plan on staying in Silicon Valley or if you plan on staying in, in tech forever, it's one of these things where it's like, we're all going to be here for a while. And so I think whether I'm an investor, whether I'm an advisor, whether I'm just a friend and someone you can call late at night, like I'm happy with all of those roles. I think that it really just, um, a lot of it comes down to timing and luck and access and, 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 and other things as well. That's really, um, it kind of underscores the, not to use process as a word, but approach is way more important than the results in May of 2019 of getting into that deal or not, or 2020 and, and how the year shapes up. It's really, um, it's a 30 year journey minimum if, if you want to do something really well. Yeah, it's so true. And I think going back to your point earlier, I mean, I love looking at things from Howard Marks or, or Charlie Munger, all of these, you know, amazing investors and, you know, the individuals ha- who have, you know, written the, the books about this stuff. And I think one thing that I do think about, and, and now that I'm spending more time with LPs and potential investors for work life, is that equity investing is very different from other asset classes. It's highly relationship-based. It is fairly anecdotal. And I think that if anything, there's a lot of different levers and muscles and things that you need to develop over time. And in the way that I typically think about this is, you know, equity is ownership and I think ownership is responsibility. And so it's the same way, it's the same way if you, you know, if you buy a house, if you buy a car, if you get married, like when you when you have a formal relationship, when you are in something that's committed, there's like a real responsibility. And so I think if anything, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about in this new macro environment is also just um, how do you set companies up for success in the next round? Or how do you help companies think creatively about you know, the, the 6 to 12 months to come? Because I think if anything... You know, it's it's very uh, it's hard to fire an investor. It's it, it's incredibly hard to fire a board member. And so, if anything, I think there's such a really good angel ecosystem. There's a there's a, an emerging ecosystem of small funds, and I think that um, it's it's a great time to really figure out like optimize for relationships and who are the right people on the cap table versus making really rushed decisions or potentially optimizing for other metrics that 
are less clear or quite frankly, don't yield a better company or a better culture or a better outcome long-term. The network and other people is so, so important. I'm sitting here talking to you about to deep dive into your angel approach to angel investing. And, and now I'm, I'm, what's going through my head is wondering, so with Foxy, were there people that you chatted with before? Were there people, models in your head that were like, okay, I want to be like this person. I've followed uh, what they did to become investors. Were there people that you just reached out to and said, I'm thinking of making investment? If, if there were, who were those people and, and what influence did they have on you in that, that moment from going non-investor to becoming an investor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I have a few thoughts f- thoughts on the topic. So I had um, I'd been teaching classes at General Assembly on evenings and weekends while I was at Expedia and living overseas. And so I think in teaching, I had a lot of exposure to early stage companies. I had a lot of exposure to pitch decks. I was also young, had no money, and was still you know figuring my life out. And so and how, I, how old were you at this, at this point? This was, uh, this was shortly after college. I think I started when I was probably 23 and then I taught for about four and a half years. And so I taught in Sydney at GA. I also taught at GA and SF when I moved here. And so I had built this go-to-market playbook that became the, um, the outline for my course that I taught at General Assembly. After a while, I spun that out and turned that into the program that I call SAS School that I do um, today once a quarter. And I, and I kept sort of incrementally figuring out. So, you know, once you start teaching, then you start advising, once you start advising and you have some equity and companies, like it makes sense to start angel investing. And so I loved this model of like the things that you do on evenings and weekends, I believe that you can turn into a full-time thing. And so I'd been spending, you know, so many nights per week, either teaching or advising or hosting dinners. And the awesome thing was while I was at Zendesk, week two at Zendesk, I filled out a career card and it was goals for 12 months, goals for five years from now, goals for 10 years from now. And I actually, I had published this on Twitter and I, and I thought it was so interesting to get everyone's feedback. I had assumed that a lot, that a lot of companies do this. I think this was, I was very fortunate to have just an amazing executive team and individuals in the company that actually want to track your, track your goals. And so in doing that exercise, you know, it was like, I want to be more successful or I want to, you know, get promoted. But 10 years from now, I want to be a full-time investor. You know, I want to be an independent board member. I want to like have real substantial impact on early stage startups. And so I remember I had, uh, you know, in typing this out, I mean, I, I, I open source everything. I shared my initial version of the pitch deck. I open source the career card. Like I try to be as transparent as possible because I think that's part of the work-life DNA. And so when when sh- when sharing this career card with folks across the um, you know the Zendesk leadership team, a number of people had already been angel investors. They had already been independent board members. You know, a couple of people in particular were previously successful um, CEOs that got acquired by Zendesk. And so I had, um, you know, a friend and a mentor at the time had said, like, why are you going to wait, you know, 10 years to do the thing that you can do today? Like all of these things that you want 10 years from now, you can actually do now. And so I think that was a real eye-opening moment where I think in that moment, rather than optimizing for, you know, an internal, you know, promotion or, you know, certain projects that would give me a lot of like cross-functional credibility, 
I actually ended up picking projects that ended up being more startup or externally facing. And so I started working more and more on our, our apps marketplace, our developer ecosystem. I had built this program called Zendesk for Startups, which is a lot like Stripe Atlas or AWS Activate. And so I started like pulling these different levers where I'm like, if I want to do this sooner than anticipated, how do I be successful at that? And so I actually just found like in being really clear and authentic and open with my goals, um, a lot of doors just opened. And so um, one of my first few investors in work life was actually the angel investor who was the first check into Zendesk. And his name is Christoph Jans. And he's an amazing, mm-hmm. well-known early stage venture capitalist in Germany. And so being part of the Point Nine family was awesome because, you know, I said to Christoph, I'm thinking about becoming an investor. I don't know what that looks like. I just, you know, I teach, I host dinners, like what is that next step? And so Christoph got plug- got me plugged into the Point Nine family, which includes Front. Uh, so Mathilde had raised uh, her or had raised early um, funding from Point Nine, Loom, uh, which is you know on an amazing wow. growth trajectory, and got to know the founders of Loom very early on. And so I think it's just been like in being very clear and open and authentic and like transparent with goals, and that's been really helpful. I think there's been two other people. So Christoph is one at Point Nine Capital. Second, and how long ago? How long? When did you build the relationship with him, asking about investing uh, to the point that you made your first investment in Voxy? I think I, so. That's a that's a really great point. I think I had been um, maybe four or five months into working at Zendesk, so I was still proving out my value at the company, and I was still building internal relationships. But having that direct line to Christoph and just like giving him a heads up that I was hosting events or when are you going to be in San Francisco next or to what extent can I do these things that complement the things that I'm doing internally, but also start to elevate and build programs externally. And I felt that that thought partnership was so valuable. That's really, really unique for a new employee four months in to build a relationship with a relationship with one of the early investors. Was he super involved in the company? How did that even kind of come across your head of, hey, I'm going to reach out, somehow get in touch with one of the early investors? Yeah, it's a good question. He was less involved at the time, but still very friendly. And so if anything, it was an interesting time where as Zendesk was scaling from one to seven products, like we were building a full-blown CRM platform, I started working on competition. And so part of competition is both looking up market and directly at Salesforce and also looking at new companies like Front or Customer or any of these new um, customer support platforms. And so I think organically, I started receiving some inbound and hearing from other VCs that were either evaluating customer support software and they wanted um, a Zendesk person's point of view. Or I think in Christoph's case, like he's an amazing blogger and publisher. And I think he's, he's known for being just a great SaaS writer. And so if anything, I was in parallel getting myself up to speed on early stage SaaS metrics and, and wanted to understand his um, methodologies and philosophies and, and how he was able to be very thoughtful on diligence and pick companies that were so early. Mm, That is, that's fascinating. And it just, it's, it goes to show for for anyone listening, it, it, these stories seem like it's okay. Went from not investor to investor on one 
you know, Wednesday afternoon that you sign the dotted line. But the, the truth is it's so many years in the making of whether it was teaching, whether it was getting to know angel investor of the company you're working at, whether it was hosting the dinners, whether it was advising so much that went into that before you decided, okay, I, I'm going to start investing. Can I ask how, how much you put into Boxy? Yeah, I ended up putting, I put 25 K and so I think as an angel, I was pretty consistent on the 25K-ish mark. There had been a few, I will I will say there have been a few where it was like way less than that. And I oftentimes encourage this for first-time angels where it's like sometimes just getting on the cap table is so much better and greater because you access a new network than ever being concerned with the check size. And so I think there have even been a few investments where I've put in like 5K and it was just to get in, just to get to know people, like just to actually like learn more about the space. And I oftentimes mm-hmm. encourage, um, you know, people who are thinking about building a track record as an angel to not be concerned with check size and to just like right. prove your worth and get in. Cause I think we're, we're in a time where, you know, it can be pretty competitive to angel invest. And so whether it's investing or, or asking for advisor shares, I think there's a lot of ways that you can, you can be a part of a company's journey and have significant impact. Yeah, it's it, and it really is a long term. Even if you plan on just doing it on the side, that credibility that you that comes with one knowing what you're doing, but learning along the way, getting in just at any level, just to to be along for the ride, learn from it. I'm seven years into investing, and man, I people still you know obviously people still have. No clue who I am, but it's been seven years of trying to build the credibility to where an intro does come across a founder's email inbox and they're like, oh yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that meeting of a really, you know, all, all email founders of, of deals that, that have already closed, you know, four months prior, just in the, in the hopes that there might be a chance to get in. And it's, uh, yeah, it's extremely competitive and I don't know how much of a upper hand I have, but it has definitely been a seven-year journey to where a founder responds to that email and says, "Yeah, we'd love to chat." And it's it, it is so many of the uh, as they say, the lemons ripen the fastest. So your worst investments will probably show themselves as as not great investments financially early on. You'll still learn great things from it, but it can take five years for something that you joined, you know, in 2015 and 2020 is now something that that is a signal to a founder that, hey, I should actually chat with this person because Loom is, is really similar to what we're building or, or you know, Marco Polo. And, and for three, four years, just you wouldn't have that type of uh, signal or credibility with that investment. It takes takes quite a while for, for many of the, the best companies to, to ripen and, and find footing. When you think about your first five investments before starting the fund, which one was the uh, which one would you, actually before I get into those, I would love to know right when you were thinking of of investing and right when you went from quote unquote not investor, but a teacher, a advisor, uh, a mentee, a mentor to an investor. What would you tell yourself back then, Brianne? Back then, what would you advise yourself to do more of and do less of before you actually you know became a quote unquote investor? I think that um, 
Investing is a really interesting multifaceted role where I do find, you know, some people are great at sourcing, they're great at hosting dinners, they're great at building a broad network, they're great at reaching out to people and cold emailing people. I feel like in the last, you know, and sort of the last market cycle and, you know, sort of the last couple of years, I have found that a lot of a lot of VCs will say that venture became more of a marketing role where it's like everyone had a podcast or people are great on Twitter, or everyone's creating a Substack or, or, or doing all of these different activations to kind of build their personal brand. I think that what's interesting now and where I think there's a great opportunity, and this is kind of funny because it's actually my point of weakness, is I do think that the best investors also have a real sales muscle. And so I think in a lot of ways, even before I had money, when I had some money, and today now that I have a fund and it's other people's money, I think that the sales part of venture is a really underappreciated skill. Amen. Right, right. And Jeff Lewis was on here recently saying it's um, that is the most important skill. Uh, when he was thinking of being a, a founder or investor, he said, at, at, in his heart of hearts, he knew he was a salesperson and he would do far better as an investor. And I had never really thought of that before, but I think you're totally right. Completely underappreciated skill set for uh, for an investor. Yeah, it's really, I mean, and you, now that I have my own fund, I mean, you see that on the LP side where you have to run a real sales process with LPs to figure out what is their interest level? What will it take to close them? What is their average time to close? Like you actually can like fully map it back to like traditional sales strategies. I find on the venture side, and this is something that, you know, I've learned from, from other angels, from institutional investors. I think there is something to really having, you have to have a really strong ability to read the room. And I think meet founders where they are, you know, uh, not really, I wouldn't say it's, it's the same as dating, but I think there is something to like courting someone, putting in the time, building the relationship, and then like adding the value and really pushing to invest. And I think especially for me, having come from more of the um, product person, partnerships person, someone who was great at building relationships, I think that it, there have been moments or companies that I've missed. I think HipCamp is a great example where I should have pushed to put money in or been a little bit more on the sales side where it's like, I give a lot of free advice to people. I also love building relationships. And so I do think that I'm more long-term greedy, but I also think in the short term, I'm not doing myself any favors. And so I think it's like developing that sales muscle. And I think this is where I learn a lot from mentors who are career VCs or just individuals who have really figured out what, what works on the sales side of venture. And I think I'm very grateful to have a lot of those relationships because I think right now that's where angels can really get into companies that are already working or find ways to invest in between rounds. I think that for small funds, I think small funds, one of the challenges is like definitely on the, on the LP side of things and like really demonstrating that you're able to get into companies and really proving that you're ready to scale into a larger fund size. And so I think there's, there's a lot of really interesting analogies where it's like the, the marketing versus sales on the venture side, I think has been such a, a, it's been such a fascinating personal exercise, and I think I'm I'm continuously learning like what that actually looks like. What what are, what are some of the things that you would have told? So how uh, how many years ago did you invest in Boxy? I invested in Boxy. It would have been it would have been about maybe exactly two years ago, a little over two years ago. 
wow, you move fast. You move very fast, Brandon. I, I can see the common thread of high school to college, college to uh, your first job to angel investor to investing to to starting your own fund. And that is uh, that is absolutely what is needed. People seize opportunities uh, when it is when they are a startup investor. What is what is something you would have told yourself the year leading up to that that you should have that you would have uh, advised yourself to do more of or less of that you were doing that you were thinking was important but maybe it wasn't or that you really kind of missed the opportunity to do way more of. What would I do more of? What would I do less of? I think that I would do. Actually, in today's environment, I actually would have spent more time maybe writing and market mapping and developing even more ideas. And I think I would have spent less time hosting dinners, doing events, like joining other people's things. And I and I don't mean that from um, you know from from a from a selfish way or, or anything like that. I, I have been to so many events and so many dinners, and I and I deeply enjoy them. I think there's something to be said for being really clear about what you want to be known for, what types of companies you want to spend a lot of time with, because I do think that you know founders will tell you, and I think as an angel, you get to hear the very honest take of founders can really quickly pick up on which portfolio companies or which board seats or what are sort of the favorites in the portfolio. And I think the one thing that I'm very mindful of, and I think especially as an emerging fund or, or someone who's still building you know, a, a track record and, and their reputation in the ecosystem, is you almost want to avoid that entirely by being very careful with the companies that you pick and making sure that you're a good fit for that team. And so if anything, it's such a it, venture is such a relationship model where you do want to be in a position where you have established trust, where you have the ability to have daily phone calls, where, you know, when things go wrong, someone can call you immediately. And they have that trust where they feel like there's not there's expertise and knowledge and helpfulness, but there's not ju- judgment. And so I think that's the nice place where angels can play really well in that relationship where I, I, you know, I, I always say with the the angels and the small funds, we're kind of the call before the call. And so I love, I love that model because, you know, for me personally, I don't take board seats. I also love working on board decks and like really digging into some of the metrics pre-board meeting. And so I think that call before the call is a, is a really great relationship to have with someone. What is just out of curiosity, what is the sales pitch for working with Brianne Kimmel if I'm yeah. A founder, yeah. uh, just to really go below the line with what it actually takes to close a deal, or, or what you say to founders to to try to get into a round that you that you feel like, man, this is a really compelling company. Yeah, that's a great question. So, work life has been, I would say, it is very much a values aligned fund from day one, and so having been at Zendesk, having spent time with executives at Dropbox and Slack and and all of the high growth, more, you know, product, not well, product led from from an acquisition standpoint, but also, you know, more design led companies. You know, I, I think that there's values alignment from the sense that like, I truly like looking at workplace stuff. And I like spending time on very specific problems. And so kind of going back to the house party example earlier, I think like, Having multiple happy hours per week on DevOps and data infrastructure and you know developer evangelism and all of these topics where 
you know, it's pretty easy to do the TLDR. It's very different to have a deep network with the people who are doing this day to day and the people that are doing it at companies where the things that they're building really, really matter. And so I think if anything, um, the value prop for work life has been an evolution of helping with product-led growth and and thinking through more scalable early go-to-market strategies. I think the long-term play and what's interesting is that over time, collectively, the network has evolved into these new and emerging trends that are happening inside of companies. And it's a very operator and creator and you know, individual developer friendly sort of firm. And so I almost imagine it's almost like the consumerization of venture where it's like, I I recently received um, a portfolio company who had emailed me and said, you know, we cold emailed a product designer and the product designer um, had emailed them back and said like, wow, this is so cool that you're backed by work life. I think that there's a really cool common thread between all the companies And so, you know, as someone who has only been investing for a couple of years, as someone who is not even a year into having a fund, I thought that that was such a strong single data point to say that, wow, like the things that we're doing for every creator, for every designer, for every individual engineer who's a couple of years out of school, like I just want that consistency to be really clear throughout everything that we do. And so I think in a lot of ways, the value prop is both like community and it's a more operator friendly community, but that's married with like very um, specific go to market strategies that help very technical founders. And what about your first one or two investments? What was the pitch with? I think it's it's a really phenomenal point of creating a fund. You get to create this identity and and spot something that is missing in the market that you can stand for that you truly believe in. I think as an angel, how did you do that? Uh, my next, you know, my next thought is as an angel, how did you, how did you accomplish that sales element with Boxseed or your second investment or third investment? <laughs> this is a, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm actually, um, I can be quite shy and I can actually be quite introverted. And so in a lot of ways, the things that I do are not, super clear in the beginning, because I think that sales muscle is not quite, quite built. And so um, I discovered Webflow, uh, the team, the design team at Zendesk, which is very much um, from the chief creative officer down to every individual brand designer, like very thoughtful and very um, sort of Scandinavian and opinionated in how we think about design. And so the fact that the design team was using this tool called Webflow, um, the fact that, you know, I had heard of them and I knew they had w- gone through YC. I actually cold emailed Vlad and Brian, the co-founders and said, Hey, you know, I host this program called SAS school. I do it once a quarter. I hosted it at GitHub. It's kind of a developer centric sort of program, but I think because it's a go-to-market bootcamp and because it's low code, what you're building is low code, no code. Like I'd love for you to come. And so I first invited them to this program that I run, that I that I build on evenings and weekends. I was still at Zendesk at the time when they came. I was like, oh, wow, I really connected with the founders. I love what they're building. I love that there is this sort of open source mentality to the community that they have. So individual designers are actually taking their designs. They're sharing them publicly. They're allowing other designers to clone them and build on top of them, which I thought was like a really interesting um, behavior and something that quite frankly, was how I was thinking about the future of work. 
And so SaaS school happened. Um, I was like, wow, I'm feeling really good. I, I love this company. I'm not quite sure if they're fundraising. I don't know if they want to take on angel money. And so um, I don't know if I ever told Vlad or, or Bryant this, but um, I ended up hosting a low-code, no-code dinner. And it was sort of, a, a, it was essentially framed around them because they were one that I was like really obsessed with and I thought the product was amazing. I also invited other companies that I'd been spending time with that I thought were awesome, but they were a little bit early. And so I'm like, if I can get Vlad and Bryant to come to this dinner, and then you have early stage founders that are kind of looking up to them, I think this is going to be a really good community. And so um, we had hosted a dinner. Things went well. I think the next day um, I had emailed both of the co-founders and was like, I don't know if you're taking money. I don't know like how things are going. And it was sort of this dance where like I was finding ways to be helpful over email for like a few weeks. I had uh, coincidentally uh, caught up with one of my friends, mentors, like someone who's been very helpful along the way, Arun Matthew, who's at Excel. And so Arun had previously pulled me into a couple of diligence calls while he was exploring some SaaS companies and some products that I was using day in and day out at Zendesk. And so Arun and I were walking around Palo Alto and he was like, what are some companies that you're interested in or excited about? And Webflow had come up. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, from there, so Arun ended up leading the Series A, um, which is ver- was a very Excel-like Series A. It was like 72. And so it was a... It was <laughs> right, a- I remember that. And Vlad's been on the podcast. I, I can see why you were... Uh, talk about values alignment. He is one of a kind. He is. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's one of these things where like we, I mean, we all have our own different personalities, right? Like you have a very different personality, you have different interests, like very, you know, but, but, but I would say very similar from a value standpoint. And so I mm-hmm. think having Vlad has been so great. Um, I, I'll go back to like the, 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 the investing story, but I think yeah, having, yeah, having the co-founders like Vlad is awesome because they're just such talent magnets and it's all authentic, right? Like I have founders that ask me all the time. They're like, how do I become like, you know, Vlad or, or, or Austin from Lando school or these like, these like Twitter CEOs. And I'm like, well, you have to understand. And like, this is something that you can't fake it. Like the minute that you fake it, like it'll eventually come out. A lot of these people that are, that are, that are doing good work or that are, that are, you know, becoming more known on, on social media, it's like inherently part of their personality and they wouldn't have it any other way. And so I think that with, with Webflow, like there was just such a strong values alignment. I loved this vision of like, I'm just a GitHub obsessed person and so, um, I mean, I, I was talking to, to Nat Friedman on, on Friday and it was just like every, everything that I look at is almost from a GitHub lens where I'm like, yes, you should have a profile. You should be able to build on other people's work. You should be get recognized for individual contribution, but that contribution should help other companies. And it's like, it's a very, um, community and tech optimist and like maybe moderately naive view of the world. But I felt like Webflow really had that. And it wasn't, it wasn't Wix 2.0. It wasn't Squarespace. It was something much different. And so after hosting the dinner with Vlad and some other no-code founders, we were emailing back and forth. I was kind of like doing this weird dance where I'm like an angel investor. So I can't lead around. I also wanted to put in a little bit of money because I didn't have a fund yet. And so I just kept like following up. I'm like, this is cool. Like, I'd love to meet this person on the team. Hey, have you thought about this? It was just like constant, like random ideas just to figure out like, to what extent could I be helpful? And so um, after having the conversation with Arun, after a couple of lunches with Vlad, 
Arun ended up leading the Series A. And so part of the conversation with Vlad was just like, hey, I know that it's so heavily oversubscribed. You have very few people on the cap table. I think they had raised from just like single digit people before the Excel round. And so it was one of these things where it was just like, I like whatever it takes, like I'd love to be involved. And so that's just been such an amazing relationship where it's both, I continue to be actively involved in the company. It's awesome to see them scale because it's, it's great to have, you know, visibility across different teams. I think right now it's interesting to see like my friends that were early at Slack or or early at Dropbox are very eager to join this high growth company that's raised a large round. And so I think that if anything, I'm helping on exact recruiting. Um, I have, you know, daily emails with different folks on different parts of the team. And I think there is that true values alignment where they were incredibly remote friendly from very early on. Um, they've also been very thoughtful around diversity and inclusion. And so their head of DNI had been working at the company and doing DNI on evenings and weekends. And so, you know, Mariah and I will be forever friends because I also appreciate the fact and like the things that you do on evenings and weekends are the things that you will eventually do full time. And so I think it's been a great company to be part of. And uh, it's, uh, it's obviously been awesome because it, it touches software development. It's, it's low code, uh, but also used by deeply technical people. It touches the future of work because um, Harry Stebbings had, had tweeted yesterday and had shared with me, he was in an Uber in the UK and someone had mentioned that they were launching their own creative consultancy on Webflow and they were making meaningful money and likely no longer driving for Uber anymore because they, they launched this, you know, modern, uh, no code agency using Webflow. And then you also have this amazing thing where it's like creators, filmmakers, um, you know, individuals that are currently building their portfolio and trying to find their next thing are using Webflow for the product. And so it kind of touches like every aspect of work life from the creator part to the designer part to the developer part. And so I think that that's been a really awesome company to be a part of. Right. Yeah. Magic Mind, my side project is on Webflow and and it is yeah, it's like this thing that you've wanted for 20 years, and it's finally good enough, a, a, a no-code platform that is really robust. Uh, I mean, GeoCities, you know, it's 20 years in the making of trying to get here, and, and it's actually, it's here. The And I love, yeah, Vlad's uh, episode on the podcast is just so, so illuminating and, and such a pleasure to, to chat with a founder like that, such a deep thinker. With the last few minutes we have, I want to... Uh, oh, do you want to hear my pitch, by the way, as, a, as an angel? Just, of course. I would love um, to. Just the, for, for listeners to hear how succinct it, it can be, it is, I think it's probably one part before meeting me. I remember just obviously looking up investors before investing uh, or before meeting with them. Part of it, it might, might be that, and it's either writing or, or the podcast, or uh, which is such a Silicon Valley cliche, as you pointed out. Or, or maybe just, uh, I don't know, LinkedIn, whatever it is. But on the conversation, I, I have learned by doing it so wrong for so many years to just have it down to three or four minutes of just touching on here are the areas. I, I'll just say it. It's, um, I basically touch on the fact that I'm not good at many things, but the three areas that I'm, that I am fairly decent at are fundraising, growth, and, founder psychology and, and touch on each and just, 
have an understanding of knowing that these are three areas that that keep founders up at night uh, quite often. And fundraising is such a strange thing to do every 12 or 18 months and and not usually core to what a founder you know spends 90% of their time doing. The growth side of things, every business would love insights on, on growth and at tilt. You know, we just, we had no performance marketing whatsoever in the payments application that we built. Same with uh, with the businesses that we incubated at Airbnb. There's very little performance marketing. It had to have uh, a really smart growth funnel and understanding. And then the founder psychology just, and I let founders know that I've seen everything there is to see good and bad of being a founder and uh, all of it from uh, recruiting a, a COO from Amazon to uh, fundraising to laying off 25% of your staff. There's nothing outside of an IPO. There's nothing that I haven't personally seen. And I really love being that phone call at 11 p.m. before you have to think through, okay, how the hell am I going to frame this for the team? This is a nightmare scenario. And and try to help them realize it's not really a nightmare and, and I, it took, you know, many years to get that pitch down to, or even thinking, okay, the, the pitch or what I can offer is, can be very small, very focused, should be very focused, should not be like, I'm going to make you a billionaire, but really should be uh, an empathetic understanding of these are things that, that out of the panoply of things you'll run into here, it's the tiny little areas that I can provide some help. And it just started to click maybe a year or two ago that having that type of you know pitch and in sales, you touched on it, Jeff touched on it. I'd never really thought about angel investing as as a sales, you know, such a core skill set is is sales, but being able to articulate how you can help is really, really key, but it also doesn't need to be you know, I'm a kingmaker or a queen maker that's gonna make this into a billion dollar thing. It could be like, hey, here's this part of the 12 things you focus on as a founder that I know an inordinate amount about that I am striving to get better and better and better at, you know, with X, Y, Z that I do outside of this investing. And, and it will resonate with founders. Uh, it will really resonate with founders. I know so many smart founders and advisors and people that don't think that they can really be investors because they don't, quote unquote, they don't know where they would be able to provide value in. And it's um, find that narrow area that you can provide an inordinate amount of value. And, and you'll likely, especially as an angel investor, you probably won't come across much competition for that specific area if it really is an expertise of yours. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. It's It's been really interesting. I think part of the transition from angel to having a small fund is I went through the thoughtful exercise of asking individual portfolio companies what I've done to be helpful, what other investors have been do- have you know done to be helpful, and there was a moment where there was an early in- angel investment who had um, this person had been at a dinner with uh, one of the you know the top tier multi stage funds at a dinner, and and the founder had said to a group of about thirty other founders that I you know Brianne Kimmel doing this on evenings and weekends had been the most helpful angel investor on the cap table. And so I am actually a very pragmatic and fairly skeptical person. And so I called this person immediately and um, said, you know, what on earth did I do to be the most helpful person on the cap table? Because you have some amazing names. And so if anything, I'm very curious. 
And so um, they had said, to be honest, like you respond to every investor update with really thoughtful feedback within 24 hours. You know, when we ask for a call, you find time, you know, that day for a phone call. And I, and I, and that was a really like a light bulb moment for me where I felt like sort of these baseline SLAs that we have at work for our other colleagues are the things that make people very good angel investors. Because I think if anything, um, you know, lead investors, large funds, um, you know, angels with a really large portfolio, they tend to have a lot of other um, things that they're they're dealing with or working through or companies that are out to raise much larger rounds. And so if anything, early angels, new angels, small funds have this amazing competitive advantage where they can move really quickly and they can be very readily available. And so if anything in the short term, like time and, you know, an, an eagerness to build a track record, you know, created a very good reputation and one in which like I you know, aspire and, you know, are are starting to build processes to maintain that moving forward. But I thought it was so reassuring just to say, like, the fact that you responded to my email and you consistently respond to the email with something thoughtful was enough. And like, that was enough for a 25k check. I think that's enough for a 250k check. I think that is something that scales where it's just like, being thoughtful and adding value is what, you know, helps people be better at their job. It's what um, founders are looking for for early angel angels that they want to pull into oversubscribed rounds. And so I think if anything, it's just like spending time with people and really finding ways to, you know, bring something new to the table. And I think in the investing case, like bring something new to the cap table. And I think that's been, um, I thought that was such a, such an amazing, you know, anecdote, because I think in a lot of ways, I was potentially overcomplicating the model and was looking for all of these things that, you know, I would need to do that prove that I'm as valuable as Sequoia. And I think, you know, are, are these large funds? And I'm like, if anything, um, being the call before the call, like you said earlier, or just being that honest read before you share something broadly, I think is oftentimes enough as an angel investor. Amen. Yeah, there's so much. Uh, the, the bar is actually really low. I have this this thought that I'll, I'll probably create into a, a, an essay or blog post soon that that within angel investing, it's a unique asset class, and that I think that it is it is all there's always a window for a new class uh, of people to enter it, and that like in college or like in professional sports, people age out. I, th- I this concept of portfolio out <laughs> that people will when they you know I I remember as a founder, I didn't want to talk with someone that had a portfolio of like sixty companies, eighty companies, a hundred companies, and I would just be like, well, are they really going to pay attention to to me? Especially the ones with, you know, like a hundred companies. Like it, it was just like, well, they're probably, I mean, it's just simple math. They're not going to have time to pay that much attention to me versus someone that has three or four or I'm their first check. And the people that I was their first check, uh, Kevin Hale from, from White Common Air, I, was, I just remember being like, I can always go to him. Or the the people that, you know, five or six or did it full time, I just... And to your point, responsiveness begets responsiveness. The ones that were really responsive of when I needed to make a call, it just became natural for me to reach out to them four weeks later when I needed someone to help me with something else. Or three months after that, this, this person always makes time to, to schedule for the call today. It, the bar is really low and it's actually the better the investor, the more culpable they are that they don't have the time. They don't have the ability to compete with. 
with someone that's uh, that is just getting into it and really has the time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I love your point around founder psychology because I think that is such an underrated, undervalued, like it's just such an asset for especially first time. And, and I'm seeing this increasingly with second and third time founders as well, where I think that oftentimes, you know, when you're really focused on one particular thing, when you're really heads down building, having individuals that you trust and people that will, you know, keep you in check. Also, I think the optimistic view is like praise you and like recognize when you're doing really good work is super valuable. And I'll give you an example because it's, uh, you know, recency bias. It's, it's something that happened yesterday. But, you know, I was working with repeat founder, you know, amazing background, had previously started an amazing company that, ha- that had, a, had a decent exit and, you know, decent investors. And the one thing that I noticed, and this was more of like a Sunday afternoon with fresh eyes, I realized that the, um, the traction that this founder had achieved in 30 days had, didn't show up until slide 17 in the pitch deck. And so first of all, I was like, wait a minute, this like 20 slide pitch deck is so long. Also, you're burying the lead so far because, you know, what you've achieved is really impressive. And the reason that you've achieved it is that you've put almost 12 months of really thoughtful customer development into this company. And you've done it alongside amazing other high growth companies. Like we actually need like we need a TLDR slide. Like slide one is the name of your company. Slide two is this TLDR slide, which says... Here's who I am. I built this, you know, company before. It wasn't a billion dollar outcome, but you've heard of the name. You know, bullet point number two is like last time we met, which was 12 months ago or, you know, six months ago, whatever it was. Um, you know, these are the things that I've done since then. And I've talked to all of these companies. I've done all of this customer development work. And then the past 30 days, like these are the companies that I've closed and the traction that we have very quickly. And like the last bullet point, which kind of goes back to, you know, my thoughts on really thinking through how do you get into the companies that don't need your help at all. And the last thing is like, this is where we're heading. And these are the people we need. And like, this is the path that we're on either way. And I just think like having that outside point of view, you know, I can only have that because I'm not the CEO because I'm not day to day building the company. I think that outsider point of view is really helpful. And I think like also appreciating other people's really good work is oftentimes much easier than appreciating the own the things that you're doing yourself. And so if I myself were, were building a pitch deck, I would also probably put my attraction on slide 17. And so sometimes it's just helpful to have someone that's like, no, no, you need that on slide two. And it needs to be in bold right. and center, like you're doing really good work. And like, let's, let's be super clear on that. It's interesting. I was on a, a call with a founder that I don't think I'm going to invest in because they, they were, I was actually trying to convince her that she didn't need to raise capital right now, that they're profitable. They're building something really special. It was almost, I, I basically was saying it's a D2C company that I was saying, look, you don't need to raise capital right now. This is incredible that you've done this amount in uh, 12, 13 months. You're already profitable. You're in the absolute dream spot of not taking on essentially what is investor debt. Of, of just expectation of bringing more, you know, obviously selling ownership of your company, bringing on a board member. And there's something to be said for your, your four people in, you're profitable. And this is, uh, don't give this up too easily. And, and uh, she, she asked about, uh, is this really good? I was like, this is incredible. This is real. And she was like, 
I just had not heard that this was really good and uh, that, that we're on the right track or that this is our margins were good that they had, uh, I won't get into too much detail, but they basically had a great business. And when going up and down the, the street ch- chatting with venture investors, their, their world is just, will this be a billion dollar company or not? And in so many absolutely misconstrue criticality for insight. And so they're just throwing critical remarks and actually encouraging and being able to say, holy shit, like 43% margins, you're profitable and you're only, you know, 13 months in. This is, uh, this is literally a dream scenario for a founder. Uh, they, she hadn't heard that. And, and, and she actually just said, it's, this is really refreshing because I haven't heard any of this right now. And so you, I think you, you bring up a really great, completely underutilized place that an angel can can provide value and that's in saying what the company is doing great at because in that founder psychology we're just so trained to be just i mean humans in general this just sonar system of what could go wrong or what is wrong just going on in our head 25 hours a day that it's really great to hear from someone outside something that is that is is, is extraordinarily good is positive is something that you actually can say, wow, all right, we've done some, done some great work. It, it's so rare for founders to get that. And, uh, and it's, I think you touched on it. It sounds like your own career was impacted greatly by that, of that chance remark of hearing that you were the most value add investor on the cap table and how sounds like that was pretty integral for your career path. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or I think it's, um, it's always good to get feedback. I think that there are ways to always improve. And I think that hearing very tactically, these are the things that mattered and these are the things that made your work or your fund or you know your day-to-day stand out compared to other people or just in generally, you know, generally when people feel um, appreciated or feel like you have their back. I think that, um, yeah, getting feedback is... Giving and receiving feedback is, is such a gift always. Last question that I have for you is, and just, I can't not ask you about the future. We've talked a little bit about the past and and you are focused on your approach and and your navigation to angel investing and then raising your fund. But looking forward in this post-COVID world and in this next decade, what are the types of founders that will flourish in this a new environment we're all finding ourselves just completely thrown into and and also what type of angel investors would thrive in this this new world yeah i've been spending a lot of time thinking about um you know now that work life is coming out of stealth which it was it was kind of an awkward time to start announcing some of the positioning and some of the concepts and so we've kept it very thoughtful, people-centric, very mindful that we want to build a community where we want to partner with individual contributors. And we believe that's the future of work, irrespective of, you know, if you're happy in your job today, if you've recently lost your job, or, you know, if you're thriving in this new environment, like we just want to be mindful of all of those, those scenarios and be helpful when we can. And so from a founder standpoint and and from a future of work standpoint, I'm really optimistic in this extended period of people being at home and people exploring new concepts and people 
building um, or refreshing their portfolio of work or, 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 or reskilling, so to speak, using their hobbies or interests and, and new ways to kind of think about, you know, their, the evolution of their career. And so if anything, I actually find, you know, I love your point around telling or talking to someone and also sharing why they shouldn't raise venture capital. Because I also, um, as a tech optimist, as you know, kind of a, a futurist, I actually believe that you know the venture-backed founders, like those, are much smaller than the total market size or the total number of people who can identify as founders. And so, while I personally um, primarily invest in venture-scale businesses, like very traditional sort of like early-stage tech. I also love investing in platforms that help these new classes of founders. And so the way that I think about that a lot is I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, designers who can code are starting amazing companies. If you think about Notion, um, Airtable has a very design-led DNA. Um, Superhuman has almost like a video game design-like DNA. I think that a lot of these um, concepts where it's like, traditionally, uh, a designer was potentially under um, the engineering org, potentially under the marketing org. I think now we're seeing like designers are actually coding, starting their own companies, and they're starting big billion dollar plus companies. And so I do look at like design led founders and what that means for reimagining workplace software. I also spend some time in the creator part of the world where I do believe that, you know, now is the time for career jumpers. And I was recently talking to, you know, a friend that I've known for, God, close to 10 years now. Um, her name is Margaret Zhang. And she, uh, when I met her, she was a law student in Sydney. Today, she is, uh, you know, a film producer. She's an influencer. She is under the category of, you know, individuals who have a couple million followers. And so if you talk to Margaret, she's the same person that she was 10 years ago, like, she loves her family. She talks to her family every day. Um, she's consistently finding new ways to experiment creatively. Oftentimes, those tend to be lucrative ways to, uh, you know, expand her her influence or her ability to to create films or her ability to to partner with like fashion brands and all that kind of stuff. And so I think if anything, we're starting to see like all these new models for entrepreneurship. And I think like Webflow has been instrumental in helping people you know, expand from move from being an Uber driver or a college student or, you know, an an individual inside of a tech company to actually start their own business, start their own agency, create their own portfolio that helps them discover their next thing. And so I think that like, in a lot of ways, I actually spend a lot more time thinking about, you know, hackers and career jumpers. And I'm also seeing a lot around like, industry academics and and the people that have traditionally be, been on the fringe and not quite the Silicon Valley venture backed stereotype are the people that are starting amazing companies like you know I, yeah I love that I, I totally agree it, it was such a high bar 10 years ago and people still model founders investors still today model the the archetype off of the hacker college dropout or the technical founder that is absolutely needed for certain technology companies. Um, but that's a model from 2004 and, and, you know, Facebook that is very different than Airbnb. 
it's very different than exactly what you're touching on. I think the, the, the companies that are going to be started right now is, uh, yeah, the bar is way lower for people to jump into software entrepreneurship. For sure. Yeah. And I think that there's, um, there's always this sort of typecasting that happens with Silicon Valley investors where I think, um, I see this a lot spending more time with developer tools where I think that, you know, the the best developer tools and a lot of the core infrastructure of the internet tend to come from people who have non-traditional backgrounds. And so I've been spending some time on the the Jamstack and and sort of the new ways for people to build websites. And oftentimes the founders of these companies, they come from ad agencies, which has historically been a no-go for VCs because, you know, the agencies don't necessarily serve as a good proxy for an ability to, to think with a very engineering mindset and to scale with the, you know, the, the growth rates that are expected for a, a venture scale outcome. And so you look at companies like Netlify or, or Zeit or a lot of these um, new applications and, and tools that developers truly love. A lot of times the founders have very non-traditional backgrounds. You know, they uh, many times come from outside Silicon Valley. Like if anything, you know, a lot of them are European. And so I think it's a really interesting time in the world where I think everyone is fundamentally re-examining their values, what they're looking for, like what is the baseline criteria for them to take the first meeting. And so I think that if anything you know, I, I do believe that startups will have to get back to basics. And so I think that there needs to be a path to repeatable revenue. I think that there needs to be a lot, you know, clearer and stronger, you know, rigor around the business model and financials. And, and I think in a lot of ways, we're getting back to almost like the lean startup methodologies where it's like, if anything, I'm hearing from early stage companies that they're hi- hiring fewer, but more senior people in this environment. I'm also hearing that if anything, you know, there are new models and ways to raise, you know, raise your first round, raise your second round. I think the non-traditional, primarily angel, small fund, you know, the seed plus or seed extensions of the world, I think that those are actually losing a lot of their um, legacy stigma. And I think if anything, like a lot of founders that are explore that are really strategic and exploring new fundraising um, methods or hiring people who are slightly unconventional. I think those are the companies that we'll see emerge from this environment as being, you know, ahead of the curve, um, successful, capital efficient, like all of the things that investors will eventually come to you for. I just think it will take us a little bit more time or we'll have to get more creative in this new environment for, for how to actually find product market fit. Well, and to bring it full circle, Helena and Woody, um, building a subscription wine business online, and uh, they're doing it in 2020. Probably, I don't know this for sure, but f- probably without a software team at at all. And 10 years ago, with the comparison you made to Warby Parker, I know at one point they had a hundred person software development team. So a lot has happened in the last 10 years directly. Um, uh, directly to the point you you just made of unconventional founders. Well, Brianne, this has been such a blast. Thank you so much for for taking the time to give a deep dive into the past and the future. Is uh, where can people find you online? Great question. So I am um, I'm at Brianne Kimmel on Twitter. Um, I do have a weekly newsletter that I publish on Substack. 
And then uh, the work life um, website is actually coming out of stealth. So I'm currently uh, coding it up using Webflow, of course, but uh, worklife.vc is, is the website for the fund. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brianne. It has been a, a blast talking to you and getting to know you. And it is uh, no surprise that you're well on your way to, to being a great investor with how quickly, smoothly that do you transition to becoming uh, from angel to your own fund and, and backing some, some pretty world-changing companies uh, along the way in the last few years. So thank you again and hope to touch base with you on the podcast soon. Thanks again for having me, James. This is awesome. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine, as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one, so thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.